You may be seated unless you are uh, four years old or kindergarten, you can go to children's worship. Uh, or if you're in first and second grade and you want to go to Sunday school, you can go behind the curtain here and make your way back. While they're making the way out, I'm going to invite uh, our friend and member, Margaret uh, Martin, to come read the scripture for us this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Margaret. All fall, we are looking at this uh, major concept in the Bible called uh, the kingdom of God. And so far, we have said kind of our, our working definition up to this point has been that the kingdom of God is the revolution of God making all things new. And for our purposes this morning, I want to add a little component to that as we continue to build on this thing. What, what is the kingdom? That's kind of the big question we're asking this fall. Uh, so the thing I want to add to it is uh, this, that the kingdom of God is the upside-down revolution of God making all things new. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I don't know if you have seen the TV show The Office but if you have, you might know that uh, The Office for many years has been run by a guy named Michael Scott. And Michael Scott, as the, as the office manager, uh, manages the office in a certain way. He does not necessarily value business. He values relationships. And so he wants everybody in the office to have fun. We're going to have a lot of parties. We're going to tell a lot of jokes. There's a lot of meetings in the conference room where he dresses up as various characters because at the end of the day, what he wants is for people to like him, for the, for the employees to relate to each other like friends, like they're a family, not just employees. And in one particular episode, Michael has the opportunity to get promoted to be in a corporate role and to, to move on away from the regional manager position. And so he is so confident that he is going to get this position that on his way, right before he goes to this interview, he already designates one of the employees to take over as the new manager. He looks at Dwight Schrute and says, you are now going to be the new regional manager because I'm going to go nail this interview and I'm going to move on. And so he leaves and Dwight immediately starts to set up shop as the new manager. And Dwight has a very different set of values 
than Michael does. He does not relate to other people as friends and as family. The things that matter to him the most are power and domination and intimidation. And so the first thing he does, he moves into Michael's office, he paints the walls black, and uh, when he gets asked about that later, he says he did so to, quote, intimidate his subordinates. He, uh, he prints out uh, his own form of currency called shroot bucks. And so this is a system to incentivize his employees into working hard. And so if they do something good, they get rewarded with a shroot buck. And if they collect a thousand shroot bucks, they can turn them in to get five minutes of extra lunch. That's how his incentive program works. And in fact, when he brings the employees together for the very first meeting, here's what he says to them. Here's how he kind of rolls out his new regime, as it were. I look this up. Here's what he says. Quote, Michael wasted an enormous amount of the group's time and patience with non-work-related celebrations and parades of soft-minded do-goodedness. No longer, no more meetings. There's a new sheriff here in these offices, and his name is me. There you go. Well, I bring that up because, you know, when, when Dwight takes over... It's almost a complete change in the way that the, the office is structured, the way that the office operates, because these two different people, Michael and Dwight, have very different operating values. And here comes Jesus, and he's talking about this thing called the kingdom, and I'm the king, so here is my regime. And so he starts telling us that his regime is going to look totally different from the way that the rest of the world operates because he has totally different values. The values of the kingdom are almost the exact opposite of the world. In fact, this is why we're calling it, and many other people before us have called it, the upside-down kingdom. He looks at the thing that, that our world most values, most prizes, and just like Missy Elliott, he flips it and reverses it. I'm glad four of y'all caught that. And um, he, this is what we mean by it's, it's upside down. He takes what the world values, and he puts it at the bottom. He takes what the world doesn't value, and he puts it at the top. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this really under two big headings. How does the kingdom do this? The kingdom, first of all, it reverses our values. And then secondly, the kingdom reverses our destinies. Those are the two big ideas I want to show you from this passage in Luke 6. How the kingdom reverses our values and how it reverses our destinies. So first, how does the kingdom reverse our, our values? Well, you can see in this passage, uh, in verse 20 through 23, he lays out the values of the kingdom of God. And in verses 24 through 26, he lays out the values of the kingdom of this world, you might say. He's comparing and contrasting two, these two things. Let's look at the, uh, the kingdom of this world first. He gives you four. Look at verse 24. He says this, <clears throat> Woe to you who are rich. Now, to be rich, it's really about power. When you have resources, when you have more resources than maybe other people do, you, you have more options than other people do. If you have more resources, you can hire people. You can get the medical care that you need. You can move to safer neighborhoods. You, you have the ability to influence outcomes. Money is really about power. And so Jesus begins with that and says, this is the main value. This is the first value of the kingdom of the world, power. Let's look at the next one, verse 25. He says, woe to you who are full now. 
He's not talking about uh, necessarily just having a, a full belly, you know, not you know, just going too hard in the paint during Thanksgiving or something. He's talking more broadly. This is about a, um, an uncritical life of comfort where every decision that you make is devoted to your own comfort, padding your own uh, existence to make life easier for you. This is, an un- this is a life uncritically dominated by uh, Amazon and Anthro and Lulu and w- whatever else. This, this is where the mantra of your life is treat yourself. This is it. That's the, first, that's the second value. You might say comfort. Here's the third. Look at verse 25 again towards the end. He says, uh, woe to you who laugh now. The word laugh, it doesn't mean just joyful laughter. The, the Greek word there it actually means more like gloating. It's, uh, it's boasting. It's, um, it's when you score the touchdown and you taunt the fans of the opposing team or when you dunk in somebody's face, you know, and you do the too small thing. Like that's the, you're, you're taunting, you're, you're taunting the, uh, the opposing team because you're, it's about pride in your success. It's pride in your accomplishments. That's the third value. You could say success. What about verse 26? Here's the fourth one. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, which as a, um, as a struggling people pleaser, this is my least favorite thing that Jesus has ever said. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Uh, but what he's after there is he's, this is, this is the idea of recognition. This is uh, popularity. This is celebrity. This is, um, you know, going viral, as it were. So you put all that together. Here are the four values that are, that are driving the kingdom of this world. Power, comfort, success, recognition. That's what everybody wants. That's what everybody woke up this morning naturally working towards. Now, just to be clear, those four things are not bad things in and of themselves. In fact, we're going to see in just a second, in verse 20 through 22, Jesus promises these very things to the people in his kingdom. But the kingdom of the world relates to these values in a certain way where things get distorted, where these things are values that are ultimatized and must be seized for yourself. Comfort, power, success, recognition, I am after it for me. That's how the world operates. That's what Jesus is explaining here. In fact, if you think about this, if you think about the history of revolutions in the world, they're all, if you think about it, basically the same. Every revolution that has really ever existed is driven by the same set of values of the, of the very thing that they're revolting against. So, for example, you've got, a, you've got somebody in power, you have a group in power or a family in power or a social class in power, and they've got all the money and they've got all the comfort and they've got all the status and they've got all the recognition, and then you've got these people beneath them is the way that society is structured. And the people beneath them eventually get sick of being on the bottom, be sick of being oppressed. And so they revolt and they rise up and they take over and there's a revolution and they claim and grab all the power for themselves and the comfort for themselves and the success and the recognition for themselves. And so what you see is that the people on the bottom and the people on the top, the revolution is driven by the same set of values. Every revolution that's ever been existed, that has ever existed, really is just replaying out the same scenario. We want the comfort. We want the power. We want to take the success and the recognition from you and give it to us. In fact, this is, this is, Part of the brilliance, I think, behind uh, the Barbie movie 
If you haven't seen the Barbie movie and you don't want me to spoil it, just block your ears for the next 60 seconds or so. I'll tell you when we're done, if I can remember. But if you haven't, if you have seen the Barbie movie or if you don't care about seeing the Barbie movie, one of the big uh, plot devices in the, in the thing is you've got Ken who's living in Barbie land and he goes into the real world and he discovers in his mind what he, dis- what he thinks is the, the wonder of patriarchy. And he brings patriarchy, that's how he refers to it, patriarchy, uh, back to Barbie land. And so the men seize power. The men take over, and they set up their kingdom, although he calls it their kingdom. And when, when the men are in power in the kingdom, it's, uh, they have all the power, they have all the comfort, they have all the success, they set up the the Mojo Dojo Casa House. They, you know, they're riding the fake horses all around town. They, they're uh, subjecting women, forcing them to listen to them play guitar on the beach. And it's this scenario. It's, it's, it's silly, but it's showing, okay, this is oppressive to the women. This is degrading. This is terrible. This is not good. And so the Barbies know this, and they revolt. They plan this uprising. They strategize, and they say, we've got to grab power back. We've got to have a revolution. And so they do. They roll through, and they conquer, and they take over. And so the Barbies reclaim power, and they're at the top, and they've got the power, and they've got the success, and they've got the comfort. Only they discover, wait a second, this is just as degrading towards the men, just as oppressive towards them. This is still not good. And so the, the movie leaves you with this question of, okay, men and women seem to have this really broken, complicated relationship, and maybe it's because both sides are seizing and grabbing after power for themselves from the other. So how are we supposed to live with one another? In the climax of the movie, Barbie has this encounter with her creator, and she's wanting a better way. What is a better way to live What does it look like to actually be human? And so she gets invited into and turned into, here's what it looks like for you to be human. And remember that that montage, that video starts playing and the Billie Eilish song comes on where she's asking the question, what was I made for? And everybody in the theater is just weeping uncontrollably in this moment. And you have this, uh, you know, such a uh, brilliant uh, example, because what this movie is doing is, is it's showing you in one particular way, both of these revolutions, they're, they're, they're driven by the same set of values. They want the same thing, and the end result is just the same. It doesn't, it doesn't leave you with a, a solution, but at least exposes the problem. This is what's behind every revolution that's ever been, except for the revolution of Jesus. Because here comes Jesus, and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And this is a revolution that is, the, is revolutionary to all revolutions. Because he says, my kingdom doesn't operate like this. You want to know what it really looks like, to, like what it means, like what you were made for? You want to know what it means to be a human being? Let me tell you about the real revolution, the real kingdom of God. So let's look at the four values that he starts with up here in verse 20. Here's his first one, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. You know, if riches is about uh, power, then uh, poverty is about weakness. He's saying, blessed are you. You are blessed when you, are, uh, when you don't have what you need, when you're inadequate, when you're weak, when you're not enough. Verse 21, he says, blessed are you who are hungry now. 
You know, hunger is about longing. It's about emptiness. You have an inner emptiness. You're longing for something to be different, longing for something that you don't have. In fact, some commentators say that they, the reason why they think Jesus is, is blessing people who are hungry is because they've given their food away to other people. So they're hungry because they've so given away all their resources. Interesting idea. Look at verse 21. He says, blessed are you who weep now. This is uh, grief. This is lament. This is people who look at the brokenness of the world or maybe even the brokenness of their, of their life and their heart aches over it. Their heart weeps over it. And then the last one, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you because of me. This is talking about uh, you know, exclusion, rejection. You might even say suffering. So you put the four values of the kingdom of God together, and here they are, weakness, sacrifice, grief, exclusion. Everything gets turned upside down. In other words, for people who are in the kingdom of God, they look at the things that is most prized in the world, most that are the ultimate things, and people in the, king, in the kingdom can um, take them or leave them. They look at the things that um, the world is controlled by, and they say, we are no longer controlled by these things. Here's, what this, here's how this uh, looks, here's what this looks like in practice. I shared this story a number of years ago, but I'm going to share it again because I doubt you remember it, and uh, it's too good to not share again. So the story is, uh, takes place in Birmingham, Alabama, September 28th, not September 29th, September 28th, uh, 1962. Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking, at a, uh, speaking for a, a room of about 300 people for uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And as he is speaking and giving his speech, there's a white man about six rows back. His name is Roy James. He's six foot two, uh, weighs about 200 pounds. He's a member of the American Nazi Party. And as King is giving his speech, uh, this man is getting increasingly irritated and angry and frustrated. And so about halfway through King's speech, this man jumps up, uh, runs towards the stage, uh, swings and punches and connects with King on his jaw. As, as King is uh, you know, stumbling backwards, uh, this man takes another swing and misses, but hits him in the neck. At this point, the, uh, the whole room breaks out in, in, in chaos. Uh, the whole crowd starts you know, uh, jumping up and starting to rush towards the stage. Ralph Abernathy, one of King's good friends, jumps in and protects King and, and kind of subdues this, this guy. And, and so the place is just pandemonium. And King, in the midst of all this, uh, he hasn't fallen over. He's still standing. He, he gets his wits about him and, and, and yells for the crowd to back down because the crowd is coming to the stage to try to, you know, destroy this dude for punching this, for punching King. And here's what he says. He says, don't touch him. We have to pray for him. And the, the crowd takes his lead and uh, Dr. King and this, this man, they go into the back room to talk Everybody starts to calm down a little bit. There's another civil rights activist in the room, Rosa Parks, who is there, experiences this whole scene. She runs out the door to go uh, to a nearby drugstore to get some aspirin and uh, a Coke for, uh, for King. And when she comes in and goes to the back to give the stuff to him, uh, she discovers a scene where, where Dr. King is sitting there 
calmly talking with this man. King has already provided this man with a soft drink of his own. The police uh, eventually arrive, or arrest this guy. Uh, King refused to press charges. And here's Rosa Parks' uh, reflection on this moment. She tells this story, and, and here's what she says about it. Quote, I was so proud of Dr. King. His restraint was more powerful than a hundred fists. His restraint was more powerful than a hundred fists. Now think about this. To be punched in the face, publicly assaulted like that, and humiliated in front of a group of people, and to not punch back, and then to protect the guy from harm, and then to provide him with refreshments, and then to not press charges. Where do you get that kind of strength? How do you respond to hatred like that? Because that's pretty crazy. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what is totally natural is retaliation. But if you think about it, there, there is nothing revolutionary about retaliation. Nothing. There is nothing unique, nothing revolutionary than uh, to respond to hatred with hatred. But here is somebody that responded to hatred with kindness. And you know what? On the surface, it looks so weak, doesn't it? To be punched and to not respond, to not retaliate. You look like you're a doormat. You look so weak just taking a punch. And yet, Rosa Parks was right. His restraint was more powerful than a hundred, a thousand fists. That's true strength. That is true power. But you see how in the kingdom everything gets reversed. Everything gets flipped upside down where strength actually looks like total weakness because it is. And yet what looks like total weakness is actually profound strength, profound power. That's what Jesus is talking about. The people in the kingdom, it looks, they look foolish. They look weak. They look excluded. They look like idiots. They look like they would willingly choose sacrifice and suffering and to give away their resources. Who does that? And yet, that is true wisdom, true strength, true beauty. And so the question that you and I have to wrestle with this morning is, which kingdom are you in? As you think through the millions of decisions that you and I make every single day, what is, the, what is the, the, the operating values of how you are making your decisions? Is it, I make my decisions because I want power and comfort and success and recognition for me or my family? Or do you say, I'm willing to give power, I'm willing to give my resources, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to take on what may look like weakness for the sake of others. And it will look foolish and it will not make a lot of sense. And yet, in the kingdom, it is true beauty, it is true power, it is true strength, it is true wisdom. See how everything, all the values get reversed. But the major question at this point is, why in the world would you do that? Why would you choose to take a punch and to not retaliate? Why would you choose to experience bad service somewhere and not annihilate this company online somewhere? Why would you not crucify people on social media who have hurt your feelings? Why would you choose the way of weakness and exclusion and suffering? Here's why. Because Jesus doesn't just reverse our values, he also reverses our destinies. This is the second thing I want to look at with you. Look, look, at, look back at this passage. Each one of these kingdoms, Jesus says, also has a trajectory. 
They have a future. They have a destiny. Look at the kingdom of the world. Look at verse 24. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Meaning, if, if, if you have devoted your life to the pursuit of money and resources and toys and gadgets, awesome. That's all you're going to get. If this life, if you think this life is all that there is and it's just about grabbing stuff and taking it, that's all you'll get. That's all you'll experience. You'll have your consolation. You'll have it now. Look at verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Meaning a life of uncritical pursuit of your own comfort will lead to ultimately eternal hunger, eternal emptiness, eternal drought. Uh, Verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You put all this together. This is saying when, when, when you ultimately value power and uh, comfort and success and recognition, in the end, you will be sorely disappointed because everything in this life is crumbling. If, you're, if the main thing that you obsess about and love is money, here's the sad reality. You are going to die, and you cannot take it with you. And if you build your life acquiring, chasing something that you cannot keep, that's a fool's errand. If, if the thing that you most obsess about is your appearance and your beauty, it, it will fade. If the thing that most, that most matters to you is being athletic and fit, your, your body will weaken and wither. If the thing that most matters to you is your achievements and your accomplishments and making a name for yourself, it will all eventually be forgotten. When I was a junior in high school, I was on the basketball team, and early on in the season, I discovered that I was on track to beat the school record for the amount of charges taken in a season. You know what, you know what a charge is? It's when, when you draw a foul and it's on the offensive uh, person. I had done enough of those, and I was looking through our school records. There was a guy in the 80s who had set the school record, and I realized if I get this many charges per game for the rest of the season, I can beat him. I can set the new record. So I committed myself to taking as many charges as I could for the rest of that season. So somebody even breathed near me. I'm throwing my head back. I'm, refs are calling the fouls. I was flopping way before LeBron even knew that was a thing. And uh, I committed to this. I devoted my body to this. I'd fallen on the ground, banging up my back. I'd come home with my back all bloody and bruised up. My mom grew concerned. But here's the deal. I set that record. Set it beat the record, beat this chump from the 80s. And then I went off to college a couple years later, and our coach, who was really into keeping the records at the school, retired, and a new coach came in, could care less about records from the school. And so somewhere along the way, those records got lost. They're not a thing anymore. And so here we are 25-ish years later, no one at J.J. Pierce High School knows who Matt Howell is. No one knows who set the amount of record for charges in 1998. But but that's the point. It's like when you devote yourself, commit yourself to setting these these achievements that you think is going to be the end-all, be-all, what Jesus is telling you is not only will those things not fulfill you. I mean, those are important. It's not like accomplishment is bad. It's not like achievement is a bad thing. But they won't fulfill you, and you will lose them. So to devote your life to them is foolishness. It leads to eternal emptiness, you know, eternal uh, drought. But if you compare that 
with the destiny of those in the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, okay, you're poor now, but yours is the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to you. Verse 21, you're hungry now, you will be satisfied. You weep now, uh, but you will laugh. Verse 22, you're excluded now, oh, but your reward will be great. The destiny of those in the kingdom is one of fullness. It's one of glory. It's, it's, it's where Jesus says, those who are humbled in this life, in the end, will be exalted. The winners of this life, in the end, will be losers. And the losers of this life, in the end, will be winners. But, but here's the question. Okay, how can Jesus say this? How can he say, okay, you're suffering now, you're excluded now, you're going to experience greatness to come? How does he get the right to say that? Here's how he can say that. Because not only did Jesus reverse our values, not only did he reverse our destinies, he, he reversed places with us. He purposefully, voluntarily reversed places with us. Here's what I mean by that. If you look at these four values of the kingdom of God, he embodies every single one of them. He is this rich king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and yet he became poor. He dies hanging on a cross completely naked without any possessions to his name. He's utterly weak, totally inadequate, totally vulnerable. He becomes poor. He, even though Jesus could feed the 5,000 on the cross, he becomes hungry. He becomes thirsty. Remember, he cries out, I thirst. He's, he's totally dehydrated. He's totally empty from the inside out. He's given everything who he is from the inside. He's long and he's hungry. Here is, here, is, uh, here is Jesus, and even though he is joy and life itself, even though he is joy and life itself on the cross, he's weeping. He's crying out in agony. He is experiencing not just physical agony, but cosmic spiritual agony. He, he, is, he is joy personified, and yet on the cross, he becomes a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And even though Jesus is God in the flesh, and has a right to all worship and all praise and all adoration on the cross, what does he experience? Exclusion, rejection, mockery, uh, not just being rejected by his friends and not just rejected by the crowds. He gets rejected by God, God the Father. On the cross, he is abandoned by his very Father. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he's doing all this? You know why somebody who's at the top is willing to come all the way down to the bottom? It's so that people who are at the bottom could get all the way to the top. He does this. He reverses places with us, not just to be an example, to show us how to live our lives, but to actually save us, to be your Savior. Here is somebody who is a king, and he comes all the way down so that we who are all the way down might come all the way up. He trades places with us. He puts himself where we deserve to be, which is on a cross. And he puts you and me where he deserves to be, which is before the throne, receiving praise and adoration and glory. When you know that Jesus is not just your example, but he's your savior, he's your king, when you rest and, and rely upon him as your king, this King, this, the destiny of the kingdom is yours. This fullness, this satisfaction, it, it is yours. And that right there is what gives you the resources to choose the values of the kingdom now. If this life is all that there is, 
if when you die, you just die, then what motivation do you and I have to not just grab power, grab as much comfort, grab as much toys, grab as much food as we can grab while we live this one little blip of a life, and then when we die, we die? It's our one shot. What motivation would we have to give, to sacrifice, to choose kindness when we are met with hatred? But if you know in your heart of hearts that the kingdom is yours, that the kingdom belongs to people who are weak and who are needy and who are suffering, then that gives you the resources to respond to hatred with kindness. This gives you the resources to humble yourself for the sake of somebody else. This gives you the resources to give away your power for the benefit of somebody else. This gives you the benefit, this gives you the resources to confess your sins. You know, we do this every single week at Redeemer. We stand here and we, we confess our sins together. We can do that even though it might risk our reputations for other people in this room to know, I, yeah, I really struggle with X, Y, or Z. We can risk our reputations. We can lose our resources. We can give away other things because the promise of the kingdom is that when you lose it all, you actually get it all back. So the question for you and for me is which kingdom do you want to belong to? Do you want to belong to the kingdom of the world or do you want to belong to the kingdom of God? In the kingdom of this world, what's so attractive about it is that you and I get to be in charge. We get to rule our own life and we get to pursue as much power and comfort and success and recognition as we want. And the sad news is, and you know and I know, it only leads to exhaustion it leads to slavery, it leads to anxiety, it leads to, to dissatisfaction, or we can be citizens of the kingdom of God where Jesus is king and we're not in charge of our lives anymore. And he invites us into weakness and grief and suffering and exclusion, and it looks crazy and it looks stupid. And yet it also leads to freedom and it leads to joy, and it leads to purpose, and it leads to life. So that's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. What kingdom do you want to belong to? Let me pray for us. Father, we know intuitively that a life, a, a kingdom that um, prizes humility over arrogance, that prizes service over uh, coercion. We know intuitively it's more beautiful. We know intuitively it's, it's more attractive, and yet it, it contradicts every impulse in our being. And so, Father, would you uh, turn us right side up? Would you correct what is, what is distorted and thrown off inside of us that we might see and lean into and embody the values of this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.